You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and thanks for being here. Last week, the website Gawker.com published its final post, not because the site was unpopular or unprofitable, but because it was bankrupt. The bankruptcy came as a result of a lawsuit filed by Hulk Hogan and backed by billionaire Peter Thiel. Thiel had a longstanding personal dispute with Gawker's editors for the site outing him as gay in the often homophobic world of big tech development. Thiel was admittedly bent on destroying Gawker for being cruel. But is a lack of cruelty part of media's responsibility? The New York Post is often accused of salaciousness and cruelty, but they aren't sued into oblivion. The Hulk Hogan and Peter Thiel lawsuit cost Gawker more than $140 million. Are we entering an era where billionaires get to decide whose messages and stories are allowed in the public domain simply by size of their wallets? Joining me now to talk about that is Lee Wilkins, professor and chair, Department of the Communications here at Wayne State University. Welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, Stephen. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Uh, I, I think this is a fascinating story. It's a little frightening, I think, uh, as well, uh, not just if you work in media, but also uh, if you're a consumer of media and, and concerned about things like consolidation, uh, which we're seeing all over the place and, and the, the sort of winnowing of diverse voices out of publication, uh, the idea that a, a billionaire could get angry at uh, a, partic- a particular publication for something that they published that was true uh, and put them out of business is a little it's it, it, it rubs against like I think most people's sense of how media ought to work. I think it does a little bit, but I the, the Gawker case is fascinating for a whole lot of reasons. Um, first off, Gawker has framed the case exactly the way that you did, that yes. it is a First Amendment case. Um, what's not said very often is that the judge in the case, this was tried in front of a six-person Florida jury, not on libel grounds, but on grounds of invasion of privacy. Yes. And what was at issue was a two-minute sex tape. Uh, that involved Hulk Hogan. Nobody disagreed that anything about that was untrue. Gawker defied the judge's order to take down the sex tape on First Amendment grounds. Hulk Hogan and his attorneys said that this was never a First Amendment case. This was about an invasion of his privacy, which is something that we in journalism don't like to talk about nearly as much. Because um, right, we're usually on the wrong side of that. Well, I was going to say, you had a story this morning about drones. I mean, there, there are all sorts of stuff going on. Um, but the point of all of this is, is that this is the first time in American jurisprudence where a jury has awarded this size of a verdict, not for libel, not for printing untruths about someone, but for invading somebody's privacy. And always before, you know, libel has been the big tort and privacy has been kind of minor. But in our current age with computers and algorithms and all the rest of that, to have a jury say, no, we think privacy is important, even over something that is potentially as tawdry as this sex tape might have been, I think that is a, a genuine part of the story that we don't talk about very much. Yeah. And, and what that means is uh, that as opposed to sort of managing a newsroom in a way that you're just trying to steer clear 
of error, uh, which is which is typically, I mean, for those of us who work in newsrooms, that's typically how how they are managed. Now you're sort of asked to to think more. I guess more deeply about uh, the boundaries that, uh, that that people have in their lives and whether news coverage uh, is is infringing on those boundaries, and that's that's a really significant mind shift, uh, if nothing else. I think in some ways for the public, it's a significant mind shift, but I've worked in newsrooms for a lot of years, and as have you, and over those years, I've seen good decision after good decision after good decision made by journalists in newsrooms about sheltering people's privacy, protecting people's privacy. Um, these are things that often don't wind up on the air or don't wind up in print so that the, the readers and the viewers and the listeners don't really see or hear what's gone on because there isn't anything there. Sure. But the, the discussions in the newsrooms, at least that I've been in, uh, have been both wide and very deep, which doesn't mean that we don't mess up. Of course we do. Right. But but my argument would be that we do it right an awful lot. Yeah. Well, and, and the line gets blurred here when you're dealing with public figures. I mean, Hulk Hogan is a celebrity, and, and and you know Gawker. I can I can talk about whether that kind of celebrity coverage is is interesting or appropriate from my chair. But but certainly, uh, when you are covering people who are seeking the spotlight anyway, uh, the analogy I guess in a regular newsroom or a, a mainstream newsroom would be politicians, uh, for instance. Uh, that privacy line is is. Is different. It's 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 more blurry. It is uh, it, it's less uh, it's less about protecting that person's image or or uh, life from from scrutiny because they're doing it anyway to themselves. Well, there's some of that. I mean, we get that notion of a public figure actually from libel law. Right. Um, it doesn't exist in the American courts in privacy, and it certainly doesn't exist in philosophy. Although um, Carol Burnett, who's a comedian in the 20th century that some of the listeners may remember, actually <laughs> successfully sued the National Enquirer for invasion of her privacy. But in the process of that suit, she said, you know, I, as a person who makes my living in the public spot, like can expect less privacy because because of how I'm making it. I think the other really intriguing thing about this case, and there was a big article in the New York Times about this uh, sometime within the last 48 hours, is it sort of points us towards the fact that although we liked to think that Gawker made a lot of money and that Gawker was worth a lot of money, the question I think has become is how much are some of these websites really making and how are they making it? They, they tell uh, their readers, viewers, and listeners that we're making money by providing you with news. Right. But the evidence is mounting that, in fact, what they're making, they're not making any money by providing people with news. They're making money by taking that news content and commercializing it yeah. in certain ways. So, I mean, the, the Gawker case, I think, is really, really interesting, both from a privacy standpoint, but also from a media ownership standpoint, and sort of the next wrinkle, if you will, in the digital era of, of news content. Sure. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm I'm Stephen Henderson. My guest is Lee Wilkins, professor and chair of the Department of Communications at Wayne State University. We are talking about the closing of Gawker.com, uh, a very popular 
website uh, that was bankrupted by a billionaire, Peter Thiel, who uh, uh, sued or uh, backed a suit, a lawsuit by Hulk Hogan, who claimed that the, the publication had violated his privacy by posting uh, a sex tape. Uh, this case, of course, uh, raises lots of questions about uh, privacy and media. It raises questions about the viability of media, digital media, uh, in an age where all media really is digital media. Uh, and it raises questions again about voices in an era of consolidation. Uh, can we can we protect enough diversity of voice uh, if if privacy is one of the things that uh, that people have to fear? Uh, invasion of privacy is one of the things that people have to fear if they're managing these publications. If you want to join the conversation, what did you think about what happened to Gawker? Uh, what do you think of publications like Gawker that that sort of make their name and popularity off uh, pretty aggressive invasions of high-profile celebrities' uh, privacy? Give us a call, 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. Is this a win for privacy or a loss for media? Uh, Lee, I, I, I want to talk about media more generally. What's the implication from the Gawker suit to the New York Times, for instance? I mean, that's a very long trek, right, from <laughs> the space that Gawker was in and the space that a place like the New York Times is in. Uh, but but I feel like in this again in this era of consolidation and and digital sort of frontierism, uh, when things like this happen, everybody sort of looks over their shoulder and thinks, well, maybe we're vulnerable to that. I think I want to go back to something you said the first, which is in American legal in the American legal system, it takes money to prosecute any sort of a lawsuit. Yeah. and the New York Times. I would I would argue regularly angers people. Yes. Um, and some of the people that it angers have a lot of dough. Um, I don't think that that is different, say, in the last 10 years. But what it may mean is that the people who have a lot of dough are perhaps emboldened by what has happened with Gawker yeah. to um, to sue uh, various, you know, to sue various media outlets. Uh, the New York Times would be among them. NBC would be among them. I mean, the people who have the really, really deep pockets. Yeah. So I, I think that's on one side of it. I think on the other side of it, the New York Times would say, has said very publicly, that the reason we're not Gawker is because we're doing journalism according to specific standards. Here they are. They're published on our website. And, and therefore, even though we're both considered media outlets, and certainly the New York Times has a huge digital presence, it's not, you're, it's not really the same Kool-Aid. Yeah. You're not really drinking the same stuff. Yeah. Um, I don't think that that makes the New York Times immune, but I certainly think it makes it less likely. And there are some famous historic cases of the New York Times defying judges, but usually those cases the New York Times ultimately won. Yeah. Um, this was a case where I think Gawker, once a judge says, take it down, I think they did the defiance um, was was actually another sort of a Gawker thing about being in your face. And it. I don't think it was very wise. Yeah. Well, what about the prospect of a nuisance kind of suit from a billionaire like Peter Thiel. In other words, so in this case, you've got you've got a legitimate issue. Should you have posted uh, the sex tape of of Hulk Hogan? Did you invade his privacy by doing that? There are there are many more frivolous claims 
brought against media outlets all the time and it costs you know it costs media outlets a lot of money defending those things uh, it did is what Peter Thiel did here uh, another threat to, to media in other words that you have to fight somebody who's willing to dump you know millions and millions of dollars into into a suit that maybe doesn't even have that much merit it depends to some extent on the kind of suits. Many states, not Michigan, have frivolous lawsuit statutes, sure. which basically say if the judge says it's a frivolous lawsuit, you get to pay. Right. So there is a little bit of protection there. I, for me, the more interesting question is, historically, we've always been worried about libel suits. You know, as you said, just flat out getting it wrong, getting it wrong mal maliciously, repeatedly, whatever. Yeah. I wonder, because it was the jury that gave the original award, the jury awarded more money than was asked for, yeah. uh, which is something that doesn't get said, get said often enough. Um, but but is are we now going to be in an era when the the suit of choice or the, the tort of choice is not going to be libel, but it's going to be invasion of privacy? Right. And within that, how did you go about collecting the information? And I'm not that wise. I don't have that kind of a crystal ball. But I would say to some extent what the what the decision here opens up is, are people going to start taking a harder look at invasion of privacy and trying to figure out whether or not that's the path that they want to take? To sue, yeah. All right. When we come back, we're going to continue our conversation about Gawker.com and uh, the media landscape, uh, media survivability, I guess, is what we're talking about. Uh, and if you want to join the conversation, give us a call, 313 1019 is the number. Stay with us on Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDT. I'm Stephen Henderson, and thanks for being here. My guest is Lee Wilkins, professor and chair of the Department of Communications at Wayne State University. We're talking about the closing last week of Gawker.com, bankrupted by uh, a billionaire who backed a lawsuit uh, by Hulk Hogan, an invasion of privacy lawsuit that ended up in a judgment that uh, the publication could not pay and sustain operations anymore, so it closed. Is that the way things ought to work? Ought billionaires be able to back lawsuits and get uh, publications that they don't like closed, publications that publish unflattering stories about them. 313-577-1019 is the number. Did you read Gawker? Did you like it? Are you going to miss it? Uh, do you feel like uh, this was an unfair advance against their ability to publish? Again, 313-577-1019. Uh, Lee, Donald Trump has also taken a really aggressive stance with media and media freedom. He's kicking people off the the bus or the plane or or whatever it is that uh, they're they're traveling around in, uh, cutting reporters out of of things, and he says this is something that would continue if he were to win the presidency in the White House. That he would uh, be able to manage or limit some media outlets. Now, Donald Trump says a lot of things that we don't really know what he uh, means precisely, and he never sort of puts uh, precise language or policy around it <clears throat> here. I just think he's sort of living in a fantasy world. I mean, uh, the, you think of the relationship between the media and the presidency, uh, the way that has worked for several decades now really changed dramatically after 
Watergate uh, was the, was one of the things that that pushed it in a different direction. Donald Trump can't really dial the clock back on that, I don't think. He can't dial the clock back, but he actually is not the person who's doing the initial dialing. Uh, For more than a decade now, what we have seen, and by we I mean journalists, I'm going to count myself in that camp, um, have seen is is candidates using social media to go around journalists. Or my other favorite thing is the national candidate uh, going to my local television station and being interviewed by a reporter who's doing her very best, but who is not up on national politics and essentially winds up asking a bunch of usually what are hyper-local and pretty softball questions. Um, These are common techniques. The the one about, you know, the going local has been used, to my knowledge, because I covered presidential politics for a tiny bit, um, at least since the the mid-1980s. So in some sense, Donald Trump is just, is building on what's already there. Having said that, there are a couple of things. One, getting kicked off the campaign bus is the very best thing that has (laughs) happened to the New York Times and the Washington Post because they are actually doing shoe leather journalism. They are doing enterprise reporting, and the stories that they're doing are revelatory, interesting, and and it doesn't matter where you are in the political spectrum, or maybe it does. These are things that, as voters, we should all be reading and thinking about. The second thing is that I wish that my journalistic colleagues would do something that we're told we never should do, which is instead of competing, I wish we'd start collaborating so that when Donald Trump kicks the Washington Post off the campaign bus, we should all get up and leave. Yeah. Uh, that That is a way of, of, ex- interesting, of yeah. explaining to the idea. American public that – Journalism isn't there for journalists. Journalism is there because citizens can't be. You can't fit 356 million people on the campaign bus. So we're there because not everybody else can fit. Um, I don't think that there is any likelihood at all that we will en masse sort of get up and say, you kick the Washington Post off, we're all leaving. But it's something that I wish that we would do because there is a sort of professional solidarity here yeah. that I think is extremely important. And it would be a, a gesture that tried to wrest control of the dialogue and conversation back away from the candidates in in the way that you, you pointed out uh, just now that they have tried to, to take control of it themselves. Well, I mean, and there's always going to be this tension. Um, you know, FDR, in a way, sort of started it with the fireside chats. The fireside chats were directly to American uh, the American public. Yes. They were huge morale builders at a time when the country desperately needed it. But I, I will point out, no journalists were involved. There was no one there to question uh, President Roosevelt about what we were doing or what we weren't doing. So again, I think this has a long history, but it's, it's the sort of thing that candidates always struggle with Journalists always struggle with how to push back. And I think lately we have been really ineffective at pushing back. And this is one place where, you know, you kick us off the bus. I wish everybody would just get up out of his or her (laughs) seat and very politely (laughs) and say, you know what? You're kicking the American people off the bus. We're not going to stand for it. And we're leaving. Well, and, and, you know, uh, to be fair, we're criticizing Donald Trump for what he did and what he's saying. President Obama has been one of the worst uh, presidents in terms of dealing with the press, access to the press, openness. Uh, I mean, it really has been 
a, a locked down administration from that. It's standpoint. been it's been a lockdown administration. Again, many of us in journalism, regardless of who you vote for or who you sympathize with, look at this part of the Obama administration and go, I wish it weren't so. Yeah. Um, it's been an assault in many, many ways on some really this brutal sort of, stuff, uh, 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 taking a revenge on people who leak. Uh, I mean, it is very aggressively anti-press. It's very aggressively anti-press. It's usually cloaked in, well, national security is at stake. I'm highly skeptical of those claims. I don't care whether you're a Democrat or a Republican or a vegetarian is making yeah. them. Um, I just I just tend to be really skeptical when a person in political power tries to muzzle the press and says, oh, the reason is national security. Um, I can't make those things line up for me. Yeah. All right. Lee Wilkins, professor and chair of the Department of Communications at Wayne State University. As always, thanks very much for being here on Detroit Today. Thank you for having me, Stephen. All right, that's going to do it for me. I'll be back tomorrow. I hope you will, too. This is 1019 WDET Detroit, Wayne State's public radio station.